Hello and welcome to Are UFOs Real with T.L. Keller. This edition of Are UFOs Real is brought to you by the Total Novices Guide Books. I'm T.L. Keller, author and former aerospace engineer. I formerly worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, British Aerospace, and Douglas Aircraft, among others. On this program, we will look into the myths and realities of unidentified flying objects, what we all know to be as UFOs. Why do people continue to report sightings of UFOs? Why do they report abductions, crop circles, and other highly strange events? All opinions expressed on this show are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of webtalkradio.net. And by the way, if you're a skeptic or have had a UFO experience or know someone who has and would like to appear on this show, we will announce how to contact us at the end of the program. So strap yourself in and buckle up. You're in for a ride of your lifetime. We have a great show today. First up is Jan C. Harzan. Jan Harzan has been interested in the UFO phenomena since 1963 after reading an article about Major Donald Kehoe in Argosy Magazine. Just so you know, uh, Major Donald Kehoe was a former military pilot and aviation author, and he wrote several books on UFOs and was quite well known in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Jan Harzan graduated from the UCLA School of Engineering in 1976. His major field of study was nuclear engineering. Due to his fascination with nuclear and electromagnetic energy, as possibly being related to UFO propulsion. Jan Harzan joined IBM right out of college and is now a middle management executive with IBM. For nearly 40 years, Jan has been the state section director for MUFON of Orange County, California. Now, for those of you who don't know, MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scientific study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity. Now, Jan Harzan is also the Assistant State Director for California, and he's also on the International MUFON Business Board. And by the way, for full disclosure purposes, I should say that I've known Jan personally for over 20 years. Welcome, Jan Harzan, to Our UFOs Real. We're delighted to have you here with us. Hey, thanks, Tom. I appreciate being here. I know uh, you had a, uh, a very early uh, UFO experience. Uh, would you uh, tell us about it, what you saw? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it was when I was a young man. Um, we had been interested, myself and my brother, in the subject uh, because a lot in the early 60s when this occurred, there was a lot of uh, talk about UFOs in the papers, a lot of sightings, uh, a lot of news reports about it. And my father used to get a couple of different uh, men's magazines, Argosy and True. And one month, uh, I believe it was the Argosy magazine, had an article about NICAP, which was the big UFO organization back then, and Donald Kehoe. And uh, he talked about these objects and 
what impressed me about him was, of course, he was uh, in the Marines and he was an officer. And uh, for someone of that stature to be out talking about the subject really lended a lot of credibility to it, in my opinion, even though I was only probably about eight years old at the time reading the article. Now, he, so, excuse me, he had a number of contacts in the Pentagon, I believe. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's true. That's true. In fact, he, he, he relied on a lot of his contacts internally to bring information forward. I'm sure that was not really uh, well thought of by many of the folks in power at that time. That's correct. And so my brother and I um, began reading about this and kind of experimenting with it. We decided that uh, perhaps there was a way these things were operating was uh, either through some kind of electromagnetic energy or some other force. Uh, so we started playing around with it and we ended up designing our little um, flying saucer we were going to build in the backyard. It used three pulsed electromagnetic engines and we were going to get some uh, wire and, and uh, create this thing and build it. It was going to be about 30 feet in diameter. And uh, so we were drawing up the plans for this thing. And one day we went down to the drugstore and there was a magazine on the rack there. It was like the UFO Digest or something. It was the United Kingdom uh, uh, version, a little half-size booklet, about half of an eight and a half by 10, 11 paper. Um, and we read in there that uh, these craft were seen around uh, nuclear power plants, uh, military installations, and places where uh, UFO propulsion research was being done. And we thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. Maybe maybe one of these things will come visit us. And so we were discussing it in the room one day, and about two weeks later, my brother walked into my bedroom about 6.30 in the morning to wake me up, and he said, Jan, there's somebody trying to break into my bedroom. And I said, uh, well, did you look outside and see who it was? And he said, heck no, I didn't look outside. So I got out of bed. I thought maybe he was just trying to pull a prank on me, and I went with him back down to his room, uh, where his room was, and uh, we looked around. We couldn't see anything. So uh, he said, no, I'm sure there really was something there. And I said, well, then let's go out in the backyard. Let the dog out. We'll go out in the backyard. We'll take a look, right? And this was around April of about 1965. It was uh, the time of the year when it's very light in the morning. The sun came up maybe about 5.45, 6 o'clock. So by 6.30, the sun was well up, and it was bright outside. Um, so we walked down the hallway of the house, and as we got to the end of the hallway, um, I was looking back at him, talking to him, and he was looking forward, and he said, look. And I spun around to look where he was looking, which was in the living room. We had a, a wall of uh, uh, plate glass windows with drapes in front of them, and I didn't see anything. And I said, well, what did you see? And he said, well, there was somebody standing against the window. I could see their shadow. And when I told you to look, they floated backwards. And those were his exact words. They floated backwards. And I thought, wow. Um that, well, he must really be trying to pull one over on me. So <laughs> I said, okay, I said, let's, 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 go out, let's go out in the backyard. So we continued walking through the kitchen. I looked up at the clock. I noticed it was exactly 6.30. We went into the garage and out the back door of the garage and to the end of the house to look back towards his bedroom window to see if anyone was there. And we didn't see anything. So I thought, ah, this is just a, just a prank he's pulling on me. So we turned around to go back into the house and froze because they're about 30 feet from us was a craft hovering about 10 feet off the ground. It was the best way I can describe it is it was a, if you took a brick and you blew it up to the dimensions of maybe four feet by three feet by eight or 10 feet, uh, and you completely smoothed the edges of it so it was, it was polished. Um, it was bright orange, uh, almost didn't glow, but it, but it was just metallic, and it had blue landing gear on it, suction cup landing gear. Um, if you look at the kind of like dryer hose, it's corrugated, it goes in and out. That was what the landing gear was made of. It kind of flopped down, and then at the end of it were black suction cups. So it was bright orange 
with blue landing gear, and I'd say cobalt blue is kind of the color, and then black suction cups on it. And then there was brown crossbars between the landing gear to connect them, and then there was a bolt right in the center. So I'm looking at this thing, and it's just hovering there, frozen in the sky, making a humming noise. If you've ever been out late at night and you've heard a um, transformer uh, that hums, that was the humming noise it was making, like a transformer. Um, but it was just perfectly still in the sky, not, not, not wavering at all, just frozen in the sky, literally 30 feet from our eyes, and we were just standing there with our, our mouths open. Yeah, I My can first... imagine. Now, uh, let me just ask this. Uh, when you uh, first saw it, it was motionless and hovering at about 10 feet above the ground, right? Correct. And did it, uh, how, did it, how did it lead? Did it move around or did it... Uh, uh, well, I'll get to, I'll, I'll, I'll okay. get to that because um, I actually did not see it leave. So um, what I mean, let me just tell you a little of my thoughts that went through my head. The first thought that went through my head was, "Oh my gosh, these things are real." Um, the second thought was, just staring at it, was that, "Boy, this thing looks like it's man-made," and that's uh, certainly a, a hypothesis. Um, the reason I said that was because I saw the bolt in it, right in the center of the crossbars, which had connected the crossbars together. Kind of, this would be like a pair of scissors; they'd open, and, you know clothes like that. Um, but as I looked at the craft itself, it was perfectly polished. There was not a rivet or seam in the actual craft itself. There was not a window, a door, anything. It was completely, it was almost like a ceramic. And I'm not even sure ceramics existed back then. I, I have to go check the history books. But um, it, it, it was just too well made to be anything man-made, actually, if I continued to stare at it. So uh, I said to my brother, I said, I'm going to go in the house and get a camera, and I'll be right back. Don't just stay right here. So I ran into the garage, and I turned to go into the house, because you'd go into the garage first, and there was a door into the house. And the door into the house was locked, which is curious, because I don't think you can lock yourself out. I think you have to be on the inside to lock yourself out. Uh, but the door was locked. And so I started to pound on the door, knock on the door, because we had an older brother who was asleep at the time we went out. Um, and about... Oh, maybe 30, 40 knocks later, I, there was kind of a discontinuity in my knock where I went halfway down and stopped and I went the rest of the way down. And I thought, wow, that's pretty strange. But about two seconds later, my brother, older brother opened the door and said, what's going on? And I said, nothing. I just ran in the house. He was watching TV at this time, at this point in time. And I ran into the closet where we kept the camera. It was a little box camera at the time. We grabbed the camera. I ran back outside. And Jeff was standing on our swing set. We had a swing set set up at the time. And he was standing up on the slide looking off to the west. And the craft was gone. And I said, you know, what happened? And he said, well, I was just watching it for, for a minute or two. And then all of a sudden it started to slowly drift away. And then just shot out, just shot out of sight uh, to the west. And so he was standing up on the swing set to see if he could see over the hill to see where it had gone. Um, so that was pretty much the sighting case. Now, the interesting thing is, 30 years later, as he and I were talking about it, um, he shared with me that, that he'd had little men in his room uh, the previous week or two. Uh, he didn't know who they were, but they were in his room. And I don't recollect that myself, um, but he just claimed that he had told me that prior to the sighting report. We uh, also discussed... Um, the fact that when we went back into the house, my brother was watching a TV program that my the brother, my brother Jeff had recalled didn't come on until like 8 or 8.30 in the morning on Saturday. So we went out at 6.30. Uh, approximately five minutes in time transpired during the whole event. And yet it appears there was like two hours of time, 
approximately gone. So that's kind of our signing report. Okay. Now, um, how did Jeff describe these uh, entities or beings, uh, height, uh, size, that kind of a thing? I assume they were humanoid type. Humanoid type, uh, very short, um, less than four feet tall. Um, pretty much your typical gray type aliens would be, I think, what he would what he would describe them as. Um, yeah. Now, now, been, so that everyone understands this, uh, a gray kind of alien, uh, typically that's been reported is uh, something on the order of r roughly three to three and a half feet tall, uh, gray uh, skin, uh, slip mouth, no ears, large head, um, and two uh, small openings for a nose. Does that pretty well describe what uh, Jeff saw? Well, I, I can't confirm that completely, but the, he did say they were very short beings. Um, he never really gave me a detailed description of them, but I would I would believe based on the size and what he'd said about them that that would be true. Yes. Okay. And where were did this happen? Uh, this happened at our home in Thousand Oaks, California. So what's interesting to me, being part of MUFON, is that the vast majority of sightings happen in people's backyards or when they're out on the porch, uh, walking the dog or smoking a cigarette. Uh, they happen to notice something interesting, and that's what happened to us. Was this was right in our backyard in Thousand Oaks. And was only it was only making a humming noise throughout. The it was period. only making exactly. It was only making a humming noise. Now, my good friend uh, Bill McDonald, who is a uh, forensic artist, um, his father used to work for Rockwell, and Rockwell he was chief scientist for Rockwell, and Rockwell has a science center in Thousand Oaks, which has been there for years since the early '60s, late '50s. Um, he thinks this might have been a test platform that they were working on. I, I said, Bill, that's possible. I mean, it's always a possibility, but I have a hard time believing that they would be flying at, you know, at 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday and in my backyard. <laughs> 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 but it's always possible. It's always possible. Okay. Now, you know, orange bricks, uh, flying bricks, uh, that, that sounds pretty bizarre, but it's not unprecedented in UFO sightings. Uh, but skeptics might say, well, uh, you, were, you were having a dream. Or they might say, um, this was a very shiny subject and it was reflecting somehow uh, the sun. Uh, what would you be your uh, response to that? In other words, an optical illusion. Well, two, two things. One is uh, we were wide awake, <laughs> quite wide awake. Um, and number two, um, well, I mean, it's just we were so close to the object. I mean, we were within 25 to 30 feet of this object. I mean, it's hard to mistake. It'd be, it'd be like looking at a uh, a Volkswagen van, and someone says, "Are you sure it was a Volkswagen van?" And you're sitting there staring at the VW emblem on it. You know, right. yeah, I'm sure it's a VW van. Right? Okay, so, so in other yeah. words, it wasn't far away. It was uh, virtually uh, 20 or 25 feet away. Yeah, and, and, and 10 feet off the ground. An unobstructed view. I mean, we were just staring right at it. Okay. Um, the, the, the most interesting thing for me, Tom, was uh, the reaction people had because we, we initially talked about whether we should talk, tell our parents about it, and we kind of came to the conclusion that for a 9- and 10-year-old kid that telling the police or anybody that this had happened, they probably wouldn't believe us anyway, so we didn't bother to do that. But when I did go back to school on Monday, I did talk to one of my best friends. I'll leave his name out. Um, and I mentioned to him what had happened. And I said, you know, Tom, you won't uh, believe what happened here. I saw this thing over the weekend. 
And he just looked at me and listened to what I had to say. And his response to me was, do you want to go play baseball? And I'm thinking to myself, wait, I just told you about this incredible thing that just happened. And your response is, do you want to go play baseball? It just struck me uh, through the years how how much the human psyche is able to deny uh, things or, or, or suppress things that, that don't fit within the paradigm of what we believe to be natural reality. So um, that was my first, my first, I guess, uh, encounter with how people can deny something that has happened. I've had other people since then that I've told the story to who've come up with what you've said. Um, you know, Jan, are you sure it wasn't a helicopter? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I, I was 30 feet from this thing. There were no blades on it. It was, it was just a craft. Um, the one thing that, that I did notice about it was it was also, also, also very small, and so the beings would have had to have been very small who were in the vehicle, if they were, in fact, in the vehicle. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it was pretty phenomenal, and it was a real eye-opener for me, and I've often wondered why they would come and show themselves to us like that. Um, it's been a real driver in my life in terms of some of the things I've done to, to try to get some answers to this, and I, I imagine it's a real driver for a lot of people who've had these types of experiences. Of course. Now, how did this affect your brother? We know how it affected you, but uh, what was your brother's sort of long-term reaction to this? Well, I, you know, for both of us, it turned – when you – I mean, it's one thing to believe that these craft are real. It's another thing to be standing 20 feet away from one or 30 feet away from one and actually see it because at that point your entire reality, your entire paradigm gets turned upside down. Um, we're all taught, you know, that we live in this little world where we were born and then we live in a little house with a picket fence and then, you know, we get married and then we have kids and then we do this and then we and we die and everything's done. And what you realize is that, that none of that is necessarily true, or maybe all of it's true, but there's this whole other reality there that, that is right in front of us. Um, some people seem to perceive it better than others, but uh, it's quite unsettling, and it turns you upside down. So you become completely, um, for lack of a better technical term, discombobulated um, and, and unconnected. And I, I was upside down for about two weeks. I remember the feeling of just totally being out of it. Um, unfortunately for my brother, it affected him more long term, and it actually caused him to, uh, in my p- opinion, I mean, uh, to get into drugs and alcohol and uh, affected his life in a negative way. Now, fortunately, he's come out of that and been through re- rehabilitation. But, I mean, you can't imagine something like this, how it would completely affect you until you've been through it yourself. Of course. Of course. Jen, I'd like you uh, to stand by. Our uh, conversation continues in a moment. T.L. Keller's Are UFOs Real? is brought to you by the Total Novices Guidebooks. Would you like to know more about UFOs but are afraid to ask? Why do so many people still report UFO sightings? Why are they even here? A new book, The Total Novices Guide to UFOs, introduces the reader to the world of unidentified flying objects. You may have accepted the stories of weather balloons, hoaxes and optical illusions as the explanation of the UFO phenomenon, but just take a look at the Total Novices Guide to UFOs and your worldview will change. This large format book is printed in full colour with more than 500 pages of fascinating reports of UFO crashes, ET abductions, 
crop circles and UFO related stories, including the testimonies of 10 military officers who experienced UFO events and extraterrestrial beings. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs also explains why they are here and who pilots them. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is jam-packed with stories and reports from well-known UFO researchers such as Linda Moulton Howe, Timothy Good, Stephen Greer, Travis Walton, NASA astronauts Edgar Mitchell and Gordon Cooper. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is available on the internet from the totalnovicesguide.com, amazon.com or from your local bookseller. Okay, we're back with uh, Jan Harzan. Now, um, you had an experience, uh, actually we had an experience, uh, in 1993. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. Um, I uh, graduated, as you mentioned, from UCLA School of Engineering, as you did, Tom, uh, back in 1976. And um, I'm a member of the Alumni Association. And uh, one day in about February of 93, I received a flyer in the mail from the uh, from the uh, uh, alumni group saying that they had uh, a featured speaker who would be talking at the school. His name was Ben Rich, uh, just a recently retired uh, CEO and chairman of the Lockheed Skunk Works. And uh, boy, it looked like a fascinating lecture and it was free. So uh, I gave my good friend Tom Keller a call and said, hey, what do you think about going to this uh, this lecture? And we both agreed it would be a great thing to do. So we packed up our bags and drove up to uh, UCLA uh, I think it was March 23rd of 1993, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they had the meeting in the facility, uh, the faculty center there on, on campus, on the east side of the UCLA campus. And there were approximately, I would say, uh, just estimated between 150 and 200 people in attendance, um, engineering alumni, uh, faculty members, uh, members of the press, and uh, uh, probably a few, few other folks at, at the meeting. Um, it was uh, very, very well arranged. We sat, I believe, in the front row, if I'm not mistaken, the front, very front of the uh, lecture hall. And uh, Ben gave a about an hour and a half presentation using slides of his 40 years at the Lockheed Skunk Works, starting out with the uh, U-2 spy plane, um, going through the XR-71. That's a whole bunch of craft that I think you know a lot more about than I do, Tom. <laughs> but I was a, it was a fascinating lecture because a lot of these craft never had seen the light of day. They were uh, drones and different kind of craft that were, were built for the Air Force or for the CIA. Um, and uh, some of them were just test craft that they tested and then uh, discarded because they, they weren't needed or the project didn't get funded further. Um, but it was just a wonderful lecture. At the end of the lecture, though, his very last slide was a black disc zipping off into outer space. Um, and he ended this lecture with the words, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. And that's a direct quote. Uh, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. Well, the entire place burst out laughing. I mean, the, the, all, everyone, they thought, it was, they thought it was, he was joking. And I remember you and I looking at each other, and we were like amazed that he would actually say that in a public forum. Uh, because we had always suspected that Lockheed had been doing some reverse engineering or something to uh, mimic these uh, these craft that had been seen. Um, so after a little bit of a polite um, Q&A, 
uh, Ben uh, was finished and people began filing out of the room. Well, about 20, 25 people of us went, went up to, to Ben to kind of get around him, just to talk to him, as usually happens after a lecture. And Ben began, began talking about different things as people asked him questions. And uh, I don't remember all the questions that were asked, but you could tell that some of the people had caught on to what you and I had caught on to, which is <laughs> this guy's talking about something pretty far out there. Uh, one young lady asked him about uh, about this te- the technology to take ET home, and he, he kind of sidestepped the question. Um, I remember another gentleman asking him about the fact that he'd been named a new manager at uh, at Northrop, I believe the, the company was, and he asked Ben. He says, "Like, how did you, you know, rise up through the ranks? How did you get there?" And Ben was very pointed with the guy. He said, "Well, you know, I, I may be the chairman, I may be the CEO, but I'm down on the floor of the plant every day helping the guys build these planes." Um, and then uh, he looked at the guy and he started poking him in the chest, and he said, "Let me ask you a question." He says, "Do you think it's possible to travel to the stars?" And the guy took about two steps back. He was like, "Wow, I mean, why are you asking me this question?" And the guy said, well, yeah, we, you can travel to the stars. He said, just take a long time to get there. Ben Rich looked at him and said, no, it won't. And he looks around to see who's listening <laughs> and uh, made a comment that uh, uh, we found an error in the equations and we now know how to take ET home. And so I don't know what equations he was talking about. We've, we've discussed this before, whether he was talking about uh, – uh, Einstein's equations or whether he was talking about uh, maybe uh, electromagnetic equations, but he basically said there was an error in those equations, wouldn't say which ones, but that we had figured out what the error was and we now knew how to travel to the stars. And it wouldn't take us our lifetime to do it. That was his actual quote to that gentleman. We, we, we now know how to travel to the stars and it won't take us our lifetime to do it. So that was pretty pretty interesting. Uh, went on to say some other things. I don't know, Tom, you might recall. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the things that uh, he he asked uh, this gentleman was, uh, you know, how how are we going to get to the stars? And then he answered his own question. He said, we're not going to get there by using rockets and chemical propellants. We have to come up with a totally new uh, technology. And I might also add that Three times during this lecture, uh, Ben Rich said, if you can imagine it, Lockheed Martin has done it. And he, he emphasized that. And like I say, he repeated that statement uh, twice. Yeah, he was very proud of his accomplishments. And you could almost tell that he really wanted to get this out. Um, some of the other things he talked about was the uh, total secrecy that was imposed upon them at the Lockheed Skunk Works and how they had to work literally in the shadows with spooks standing just feet away from them watching everything they did. Um, and he felt very strongly that with the fall of the Iron Curtain that there was no need for all the secrecy anymore and he really wanted this information to come out. You could just sense it. I oh, yes. He was just bursting um, to get this information out. And, of course, uh, when, when you mentioned the word spook, uh, you're talking about a CIA agent. In fact, uh, at the beginning of the presentation, he said he had uh, been able to recognize uh, several CIA agents within the audience at this lecture. Right, exactly. Um, another thing he said that I thought was fascinating during the regular lecture was he made a comment that there are no secrets in the world. And that was the comment, that was the quote, there are no secrets in the world, which is one of his reasons why he felt there was no need to have all this 
secrecy, the spooks and everything like that. He was trying to make a case for it. But my sense was that they had some way to know every conversation on the planet and what was going on um, was my sense. I might have interpreted that wrong. I don't know how you interpreted it, but but I got the, I got the distinct impression that basically, you know, you can think you're keeping stuff secret, but the fact is everything is known. Yes, that's very. That was the impression that I got too. Now you know, Jen, a skeptic would say, "Well, uh, Ben Rich, uh, who took over the presidency of Lockheed Skunk Works and had retired at this point, he was just joking." Um, and what would be your response to that? I can say he definitely wasn't joking. He, I mean, you could tell he was very proud of his accomplishments. He he felt he'd really made quite, uh, he and his team at the Lockheed Skunk Works had really um, made bold breakthroughs. And I think he was just hoping to get some public validation for all the great things they had accomplished. Um, I, you know, the, the the man is just a genius. If you look at what he's accomplished and what what happened over the over the last forty fifty years, and and the, the impressive thing was he basically said because his this was 1993. His last slide I think was the F one seventeen, which had just been announced in 1983 um, during the first Gulf War, and he made a comment. He said, you know, I can't talk about. <laughs> I think he actually said Aurora. Um, yes, but any, any, any of the other things, uh, right, but he says, so basically 10 years has passed. My slides only go back uh, go back 10 years. He says, so there's been a heck of a lot of stuff that's happened in the last 10 years I can't even talk about. Um, and now it's been a good 20 years since that lecture, so that'd be 30 years worth of advancements that if we were already able to travel to the stars back then, you could only imagine what we're capable of doing now. So it was a very impressive lecture, and uh, the gentleman was just stellar. Of course. And this was, I, I wish uh, was... Uh, this was 19 years ago. And as Jan just mentioned, what could have been happening in that 19 years since then? In the 10 years prior, too. Yeah. That's right. Now, his final, uh, Ben Rich's final slide, just to, to uh, emphasize this, was an artist's conception of a flying disc a flying saucer, and then he said, who knows what Lockheed Martin will be working on next. And it's a rather stag it was a staggering uh, presentation to both of us. Um, now, uh, you had uh, an opportunity to follow him at the end of his lecture to the exit door. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Absolutely. Um, after everything was over, um, People broke up, and he said, "I've got to go now." I looked at his watch, said, "I've got to go now," and he started to head out, head out of the uh, building, and I kind of chased after him. <laughs> he probably wondered who this guy was following him, and I said, uh, "Mr. Rich, Mr. Rich," I said, "I have a question for you," and he said, oh, "Okay." He stopped for a second, and I said, "You know, I have a real interest in this." I didn't tell him anything about the, brick, the flying brick, but I said, "I have a real interest in the kind of the propulsion you were talking about. Can you tell me how it how it how it works?" And he looked at me. <laughs> like trying to figure out like who are you and why are you asking me this question, and uh, uh, he said, "Well, let me ask you a question. How does ESP work?" And I thought real quick. I mean, it was kind of a curveball. I thought real quick, and I said, "I don't know." I said, "All points in space and time are connected." He snapped right back. He said, "That's how it works." And he turned around and walked out of the room. Now I don't know whether he was saying what I had answered was correct, or he was just saying, re-emphasizing that. 
the way it works is through ESP. But that's very, very interesting if you think about it because ESP is the ability to know things in space and time that you shouldn't really know. Um, just like moving a spacecraft through um, outer space from here to there and it's kind of instantaneously or in a very quick fashion would, would might work the exact same way. So whatever the principles are that work for ESP appear to be the same principles that work for uh, and I would say probably it's electromagnetic waves as I'm thinking about this uh, of some sort. But it was an interesting comment uh, that combined with his other comment during the uh, second Q&A session with the people offline about that uh, we found the error in the equations and we now know how to take now we now know how to travel to the stars. Um, I think those two things say that here's a road that we can go down to search um, scientifically and engineering-wise to figure out how we might make this work in the white world, which is really what he was trying to accomplish, I think, in his talk. Yes, it was a fascinating uh, experience. Sure uh, we, have, we have a couple of more minutes. Uh, could you just give us a, a little bit of a briefing on MUFON and what it's about and how uh, our listeners would go about uh, contacting MUFON? Absolutely, Tom. I'd love to. Um, you know, one of the things that after this occurred uh, for me was I got actively involved in, in MUFON. Um, actually, even found out it was an organization in, in the early about the turn of the 90s. Um, MUFON is uh, mission statement is the scientific study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity. And a lot of people say, well, what benefit is there in UFOs? Well, certainly, if we could take this technology and put it to peaceful use on this planet in terms of transportation systems, energy systems. Uh, we could put people in Tokyo in a matter of minutes rather than a matter of 18 hours. Uh, we could uh, move people about the planet very, very efficiently, not, not to mention across our solar system and across our star system. Uh, also, we could uh, maybe power our homes and our cars and everything else with uh, whatever energy these devices use uh, without having to uh, drill for oil and cause all sorts of other havoc on the planet. Um, so we at MUFON really firmly believe that the study of this phenomena could actually be of great benefit to mankind. Um, our three major goals as an organization are the first is to investigate UFO sightings. And we have an online system you can report your sightings to at uh, MUFON.com. Just go on there and click in the upper right-hand corner, report a UFO. And we keep all the scientific data and we correlate this stuff and put it for scientific use. Our second goal is to promote research into the subject. Um, we believe that with uh, people out there doing research in the subject, eventually we're going to find the breakthroughs that uh, Ben Rich alluded to. And uh, these uh, technologies will be able to put together for peaceful use on the planet. And our third goal is uh, to educate the public. And we do that through uh, uh, annual symposium, which last year was in Orange County, California. Uh, next year it'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it moves around the country and also through monthly meetings at the different chapters. So I'd strongly encourage people to reach out and, and, and make contact with MUFON. Uh, strongly encourage you to join and help uh, fund this uh, movement and this research. Uh, you can reach us at MUFON.com, www.MUFON.com. And if you want to find out about a chapter near you, there's a little um, box at the top uh, which just says find a chapter. And you can go there and uh, literally it will give you a map. Click on that, a map of the United States. Go to your state. Click on the state, and it will give you the name of your state director and your assistant state director. Reach out to them. Either send them an email or give them a call. And uh, please get involved. We need, we need good volunteers. It's a total volunteer organization. 
Okay, thank you, Jan. I very much appreciate your being on today, and we'd like to have you back uh, in the future. And by the way, MUFON is spelled M-U-F-O-N. That winds up our uh, show for today. Are you a skeptic, or have you had your own UFO experience? For those who would like to appear on this show, Are UFOs Real?, please contact us at tkeller at dc.rr.com. That's tkeller at dc.rr.com. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned. We hope this and future shows will truly be mind-opening.